Well, good morning. You turn your Bible to John chapter 4. We're going to finish out John chapter 4 this morning by looking at verses 43 to 54. Thank you, Adam, orchestra, choir, for leading us in worship through song, reminding us that death has been arrested because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's still present, but it's been defeated. And one day, in the return of Christ, it will be gone forever, brought underneath the feet of our Lord Jesus. This is graduation season, so if you, you know a high school graduate, our college students in the main are gone, but we may have had some college graduates as well. But if you know one, hug their neck and congratulate them. That's a monumental achievement. There's some tables out there uh, that are there to honor some of the graduates. And so, uh, again, if you are a graduate uh, this year, we want to congratulate you. Uh, well done. And we look forward to seeing how... Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing how God uses you in the future as, as one of his disciples and missionaries. Well, if you would look with me, uh, for context, we'll be in verses 43 to 54, but for context, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, that is, the, the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So he's been there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. For we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. So her testimony made an impact, but it was the word of Christ that that ultimately brought conversion. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the word. Lord, thank you for this passage today. I pray that it would bring hope to those who struggle sometimes with despair and depression and discouragement. I pray that our faith in Christ, the Lord Jesus, would grow today as we see his grace, his compassion, his power, his sovereignty. And we pray, Lord, that your name would be glorified in the face of Christ through the preaching of the word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Tuesday at noon Eastern, after an hour and a half into a flight from the Bahamas, a pilot of a single-engine Cessna said he wasn't feeling well any minute. Because he then slumped over the controls. Well, this prompted one of the two passengers on the plane to act. So he got on the radio, Darren Harrison, and he informed air traffic control, I've got a serious situation here. Maybe an understatement. <laughs> My pilot has gone incoherent, and I have no idea how to fly the airplane. But during this 10-minute interchange with this air traffic controller named Christopher Flores, 
uh, Harrison was guided and he got the plane back on track. And then another controller, Robert Morgan at Palm Beach International Airport took over and he helped Harrison, who had never flown a plane, land the plane in Palm Beach. Uh, the Federal Aviation Administration is calling this a miracle in the air. Now I want you to consider something for a moment. 30 minutes into that flight, 45 minutes into that flight, 60 minutes into that flight for that matter, Darren Harrison was oblivious to his need for an air traffic controller. He may have had regard for air traffic control, but he was oblivious to his need for it. But a negative change of circumstances radically changed his priorities. He went from indifference to the air traffic control to utter dependency on air traffic control. Now, this is analogous to what we often see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. People who were previously indifferent to the Lord Jesus Christ, but now because of a painful trial, an adversity, a hard blow, they come to him with desperation. Of course, last time we saw with this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman, that some are converted to Jesus by simply having their sins exposed. That's what happened with her. And then we saw with the, the townspeople that she went to evangelize, some are converted by merely hearing the word of Christ, and they are converted to Christ. But in our present text, we see some are converted, and it begins with external blows. Now, certainly no one is converted apart from the word of Christ, the gospel. But often it begins with difficulties in trials. Indeed, uh, the first point that this passage would make for us, our dependent faith in Jesus is often awakened by crises. Look with me in verse 43. And so Jesus has come. He has spent two days with the Samaritans. And after the two days, he departed for Galilee. Now, we saw this in Genesis 1. But from day three of creation, where life for the first time was created from the barren earth, three days has become an important theme in God's economy. It is an important theme in the scriptures. It was on the third day that God provided a lamb, or, or a, a, you might say a goat, a ram in the thicket, so that Isaac did not have to die. It was the third day that, that God raised up Jonah from the belly of the well. 
In Hosea 6, 2, in a remarkable prophecy, uh, the scripture says, On the third day he will raise us up, the people of God, that we may live before him. Jesus will rebuild the temple on the third day. We saw that in John chapter 2. And then in chapter 2, at the beginning of this section, and we'll see why this is one section, uh, we saw that it was on the third day that Jesus performed his first sign miracle. He turned the water into wine. And then we have just seen that in verse 40, he stays with the Samaritans for two days. And now in verse 43, it's the third day. And it's intriguing. Indeed, it's counterintuitive why Jesus comes back to Galilee. That's his homeland. That's his home territory. Look with me in verse 44. So he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, his own hometown is Nazareth, but it's in the region of Galilee. We read about that in Luke chapter 4. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying that he came back to the region, the very region, where he had no honor. Now that's counterintuitive to me. I tend to to gravitate to places where people like me and esteem me and honor me, right? But he is going where he has no honor. What's behind this? Well, Jesus has come to restore honor. And he's doing it on the third day. Do you think John is preparing us for something that we'll read about at the end of the gospel? He's coming to restore honor that belongs to him as the eternal son of God. And he's doing it on the third day. And what honors Jesus benefits his image bearers. Those two truths always travel together. What honors Jesus benefits his image bearers because we were created by Christ and for Christ. And he's coming to do it on the third day. But when he gets there, he encounters two kinds of people. The first we see in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now don't be confused by that. He has no honor there, but they welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Many of them had been there. In fact, we we read about them at the end of chapter 2. He had performed many miracles and signs in Jerusalem during that time. And, And it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And so some of those were the Galileans here. And so they welcomed him, having seen that all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast but as we saw at the end of chapter 2 Jesus knew their their faith was not genuine it's remarkable what it says at the end of chapter 2 Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people he knew what was in their hearts and so they welcomed him but he did not entrust himself to them he knew their faith was not genuine now this is important point to make in the 
in the Bible South, in the, in the, the South that we live, which is a largely considered a Christian culture. But we understand that cultural Christianity abounds in the South. Because what we see here, these people did not outright reject Jesus. They welcomed Jesus, in fact, but they only regarded him for what he could do for them. They were users. They were consumers, if you will. And they are to be contrasted with these despised Samaritans that they were actually hostile to. There was a lot of racism there. Uh, they're, they're to be contrasted with the despised Samaritans who came to faith in Jesus simply because of his word and because his word had infiltrated their sin-darkened consciences. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. We know that. How many in the South, and I'll just pick on the South. I'm from the South. Most of you are from the South. I grew up in the South. I grew up in the Bible Belt. You grew up here, many of you. How many in the South do you know are loosely involved in the church when they don't have anything else to do on their schedule? They, they arrange church life around that schedule, not because their hearts are overwhelmed by the glory of God in Jesus Christ, but out of some kind of earthly benefit. They have very little interest in learning about the things of God or the great doctrines of the faith like the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of providence, the doctrine of hum humankind, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of last things. They, they're bored about those kinds of things. But they do like the lifestyle benefits of practical preaching that helps them cope with the issues of daily life like how to deal with debt and how to deal with worry and anxiety or maybe the church is where their social life is lived out but as we're gonna see in this passage especially in verse 48 Jesus is not interested in appeasing crowds who merely want to be catered to, who want to be entertained. He is here to seek and to save sinners who recognize their desperate need for him. Look with me in verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee. So Cana is one of the towns in the region of Galilee. If you'll remember in chapter 2, that's where he first came. So uh, this is a section that began in Cana with a sign miracle. And it ends in Cana, as we're going to see, with a, a sign miracle. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, which is about 20 to 25 miles away from Cana, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, we don't really know what his position was, uh, but this word for official has the idea of royalty. Maybe he is a Roman royal official or advisor. Maybe he has some relationship to Herod. But one thing's for certain, he is a superior 
in, in the government. And he's very likely a Gentile. Which is interesting because we have seen a progression in chapter 3 from where Jesus first engages a very committed Jew in Nicodemus. And then he took his ministry to the Samaritans and he engaged the Samaritan woman and, the, and, and all the peoples in this city. And now he is engaging or going to engage a Gentile. Uh, this is the Acts 1-8 uh, plan or pattern. Also, think about the various peoples that have been engaged so far. You've had this very committed religious person in Nicodemus, likely wealthy, affluent. You, you've had this very poor Samaritan woman who was irreligious. In fact, she was immoral. And now he meets this man. Uh, he will meet this man who is very esteemed by in the government. He's, he's accomplished a great deal professionally. He is very likely very well off. And what this tells us is that every person on the planet needs Jesus. The religious, the irreligious, the poor, and the wealthy. The unsuccessful and the successful all need Jesus. Now look at me in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. So here's a man who's done what it takes to reach elite status professionally and in his career, and it's very, very likely that he compromised a great deal on the way up. If you're a superior in Caesar's government, that means you've had to bow the knee to Caesar uh, your entire life, your entire professional career. He would have had to burn incense to Caesar and, and cry, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. This man has compromised himself all the way up, and he has been very successful in doing it, and it has appeared to work for a time. Do you know people like that? They don't know God. They don't love God. In fact, they're anti-God. And they seem to be successful doing that. Life seems good for them without God. But you know what Psalm 62, 9 says? Those who are of a high estate. Now, what is a high estate? It's someone who, who's really succeeded in life. Those who are of a high estate are a delusion. It's not real. It's smoke and mirrors. And this man has come to realize that. He's come to realize it the hard way. And it has, like Darren Harrison in that plane, has immediately reversed his priorities. You know, one of the things I do when in my car, when I'm working out, is I listen to books on Audible. Uh, books that I don't have time to read, sitting down to read. I just, I listen to Audible. And the main genre that I listen to is biography or autobiography. And I listen to all kinds of people. I, I've listened to uh, biographies and autobiographies about presidents Generals, war generals, uh, 
great Christians in history, missionaries. I've listened to biographies on great athletes, great singers, great bands. Um, the list is, it almost seems endless. But one thing every biography has, every autobiography has, is trial and crises. You see, fame, success, money, being of high estate in our world does not buy you immunity from pain and suffering and the fallenness of this world. Though this prosperity may fool you for a time into thinking you have immunity. But this man's blinders have been taken off. God forbid those who go through these crises and their blinders remain on. This man's blinders have been taken off by his son's illness. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' great biography by Ian Murray, he said at the time of World War II that churches were emptying in, in Europe and in England. And everybody had an opinion on why. There were actually those back then who were saying, we need to become more relevant for the culture. Uh, we, we need to become more creative, and, and then maybe we can attract people back into to church. So the, the churches are emptying, and, and we don't know what to do about it. Well, there was a missionary woman, a British missionary named Mary Burton. Lord Jones says she gave the real reason. The thing which has emptied churches is lack of need of God. That's what's emptied the churches. And hence, one of the benefits of affliction. It can produce a crucial qualification for coming to Jesus. A sense of need. Now, how do we know if we have a desperation for Jesus? Well, think about how this works in other arenas. If you're a desperate salesman, what do you do? I mean, you hit the streets. You make extra calls. How do you know if you're a desperate student? You make sure you're at class. You study into the hour, late hours of the night. You research. You do what it takes. How do you know if you're a desperate athlete? You hit the gym. Everybody wants to put on the jersey in the fall, but are you hitting the gym when no one's watching? That reflects someone who is a desperate athlete. What if you're unemployed and, and, and you're desperate? What do you do? You get qualified for your job or you, you, you build your resume. You, you send out resumes. You hit the streets looking for a job. And spiritually, spiritually, you know you're desperate for Christ when you are availing yourselves to the means of grace by which Christ encounters us. You have an open Bible. You have a, a vibrant life of prayer. 
You are committed to corporate life. You arrange your schedule around corporate life rather than arranging corporate life around your schedule. You have a need and it is tangible. You long for Christ. Now at this point, Jesus responds to this desperate man. But not in a way that I would have expected or you would have expected. He responds to him by way of a test. Now keep in mind, when Jesus or God tests us, it's gracious. He's not harsh. Uh, his tests are gracious. They expose things that need to be exposed. And that brings us to the second point of this passage. The Lord often tests us in our crises to validate our dependent faith in Jesus. That is to authenticate whether it's real. Look with me in verse 48. So Jesus said to this man whose son was at the point of death, it almost seems harsh, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, all of you, or perhaps most of you, or many of you have sent text to someone and they took it wrong because they didn't see your countenance. They, they couldn't hear your tone. Uh, there's no font for a warm tone. Uh, the, the fonts are the same for a mean tone or a warm tone. So we, we're not here. We weren't there seeing the countenance of Jesus, but we know that he is gentle and lowly. We know that he is compassionate. But what we see here is that Jesus is confronting a mentality that simply saw him as a miracle worker. Uh, kind of an archetypal Santa Claus. But Jesus is testing him. Jesus is saying to the official, and he's saying to all the Galileans, because he's, this is second person plural here, and he's saying to you, and to me, is it me you really want? Or just the presence I can bring you as your archetypal Santa Claus? In other words, do you, is it you, me you want? Do you want me? Or do you simply want your son healed? That's what he's exposing by the text or the test. And that question could be multiplied many times over and directed to every single person here at Lakeview. Jesus is asking, do you really want me or do you just want health? Do you really want me or do you just want your child to get a scholarship or be successful in sports or music? the arts do you really want me or do you just want a spouse or do you want children or you just want the promotion you just want the raise that's the question he's exposing here well this man demonstrates his real desperate faith because he will not be put off by the test even though it appears that Jesus is putting him off. It reminds me of the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18 who came to the judge and would not stop. And Jesus commended her faith in the parable. Look with me in verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, 
come down. Do you see the desperation here and the persistence? Because he sees in Jesus his only hope. Come down before my child dies. He's essentially begging. He's begging. And it's unbecoming of such a high official. I mean, the proud and the powerful don't generally condescend. They don't generally stoop down to beg help from uncredentialed people. And from the world's perspective, Jesus was uncredentialed. But he's come to the end of himself. Maybe you've been there at some point where you were desperate and you, you lose sight of anything around you. It's impossible for you to be shamed at that point. That's where he is. He's exhausted all other options. And now he's at Christ, at the feet of Christ. Now some, and I tend to lean this way, have taken this to mean um, that the official's plea has changed at this point. Notice he says, come down before my child dies. That his plea changes here. And, and what, what many scholars believe here is that his request from Jesus, or to Jesus, has been changed from asking Jesus to heal him to asking him to come reveal himself to his son before he dies. In other words, the, the official's faith is growing as he is encountered by the Son of God. Now, if this is the way this is to be taken, because remember earlier he was wanting him to heal him, and now all of a sudden, just come down before my son, my child dies. If this is the way this is to be taken, and I lean that way, this is really challenging to us as parents. The greatest evidence that my faith, my life as a parent, is where this centurion's faith is, is by asking and answering the question, what do I want most for my children? What do I want most for my children? At the beginning of the account, encounter, the man wants most for the, the child to be healed, to have health. And there's nothing wrong with that. We want that for our children. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be whole. But as his faith begins to center on Jesus in this long encounter with Jesus, he wants his son, it appears, to have Jesus, whether he's healthy or not. What I want most for my children is the clearest indication of what I want most for myself. It's an important question we need to ask ourselves. If I want Jesus for myself, no matter what else, then that's what I'm going to desire for my children. And that appears to be where the official's faith has grown. 
And that brings us to the last point of this passage. Our dependent faith in Jesus, our tested faith in Jesus, always bears fruit. Always. Look with me in verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. When we learn to take Jesus at his word and trust him, he will bless us beyond our imagination. Now, this is not prosperity theology. Prosperity theology is damnable. We are not God. God is. And in prosperity theology, I'm the one that determines reality. By how much money I give or how much faith I may have. This is not health, wealth, and prosperity. It's not name it, claim it. It's not blab it and grab it. That is from the devil. But if Hebrews eleven six tells us without faith it's impossible to please God, if that's true, it's also true the second part of that verse. He rewards those who seek him. But we have to let God determine what that blessing is. But the fact that Jesus didn't need to be there with the Son in the flesh to heal the Son is greatly encouraging, and it should be encouraging to us all. Because it would be easy for us to say, well, if Jesus were here in the flesh, it'd be a whole lot easier to trust him. Well, Jesus was not with the official Son. He was not there. But the official Son was healed. He is Lord over space. He is Lord over space. Today he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is not here in the flesh. He is here spiritually by the Spirit. But he's not here in the flesh. But he is Lord over space. And this man took Jesus at his word. Look with me in verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that would have been one o'clock, the fever left him. I think there may be some significance to the seventh hour, in, in fact. Well, the seven in Scripture among other things, reflects Sabbath rest. And that's what these miracles are intended to communicate, what's coming. The Father knew that was the hour when Jesus has said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed. Notice he's already believed, verse 50, but here it says he believed. What does that mean? Our faith is not stagnant. It's not something you either have or that you don't. Our faith is something that is intended by God to grow and to be strengthened. His faith is being nourished by the person of Christ. And he himself believed and all his household. So this is an example of a long-distance miracle. And we need to read about those. Uh, Jesus healed the centurion's servant from a distance. We know that from Matthew 8. Uh, Jesus healed the daughter of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 from a distance. But 
What we see here, and this is so important to believe, Jesus' word is as good as his bodily presence. Jesus' word, if you believe that. Now, if I shared with the Auburn community, Christ will be here at Lakeview in the flesh at 1045 on Sunday morning. We probably have a massive crowd. But he is here spiritually with the word, okay? So Jesus' word is as good as his bodily presence. And with that said, it's important to remember that God does not always give us immediate answers to our requests like he does here. But even then, we can know that he has a good reason for his delays. And he waits and he delays for our good. He's a good father. He is a wise father. And even here, this man had to persevere for a time with Jesus. We, we don't know exactly how long the conversation took place. And it took his faith deeper and deeper. And it impacted his family. It says the whole household believed. We saw last week on Mother's Day that the first principle for parenting is a godly marriage. Maybe we could say from this text that the second principle for parenting is living out a vibrant faith. Not a lukewarm faith where I schedule God around all my other activities, God forbid. But I live out a vibrant faith in the presence of my family and I let them see God's faithfulness and power at work throughout that, through that lived out faith. Well, that brings us to the final verse of this passage, this chapter, this section. This was, verse 54, now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So John wants us to connect this second sign with the first sign. The first sign in John chapter 2 was where? At a wedding. He turned the water into wine. And so in the wedding scene, it was a picture of joy. Here, we see a picture of sorrow. Archibald Campbell says it better than I can say it, so here's what he says. Jesus is more than equal to either occasion. He has a place in all circumstances. If we invite him to our times of innocent happiness, like the wedding, he will increase our joy. If we call on him in our times of sorrow, anxiety, or bereavement, he can bring consolation, comfort, and a joy that's not of this world. Now, this is not... This sign miracle. We have to make sure that we understand this. It is not a universal promise to expect a miracle in every crisis. That is not the purpose of the miracles. It's not the purpose of these sign miracles. No. The particular promise 
that is made here by this sign miracle actually signals something that's bigger and better than the healing of a son or daughter. Because this child of the official who was healed would actually die eventually. They would die eventually. This is a sign miracle that points beyond itself to something greater. Two weeks ago, the staff went to Gatlinburg, and I thank you for allowing us to go for our retreat, our staff retreat. And as we got closer to Gatlinburg, we began to see signs. And those signs pointed to the destination, right? Now, it would have been foolish for us to stop at the sign and unpack the vans and have our retreat at the sign. I mean, that would be insane. Why? Because the sign can never live up to the destination in which it points. The sign is an important thing, but it's not the thing. So it cannot be our destination. Now, can God heal? And does God heal in this life? Yes, he does. But we're not promised physical healing in this life. He does and he can. But we're not promised it. It's not the purpose of the miracles. Again, our destination in which the miracles point is far greater than a physical hearing now healing now because we're going to die again even after the healing the destination is an eternal age an eternal place where heartache won't exist death will be removed forever there will be no wars there will be no abortions there will be no Pro-choice politicians. There'll be no politicians in that place. What will be there is the unhindered presence of God. Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Speaking about that day. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. He healed the son, the son would die again. But what that miracle points to is the day when death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the point of the signs. They point to what God would secure for us in the Son of God, the mediator of God. But how would he do it? How would he do it? By a greater miracle than a physical healing of a sick boy. He would do it by a resurrection. A resurrection from the dead a death that he died where he took 
our wrath in our place for everyone who would believe. And it's the wrath of God on this world that's behind the sin or the suffering and the pain and the death. And he took the wrath. That's what these signs point to. They also point to a day when he returns and he consummates what he has begun through his cross and his resurrection. Providentially, that is not the only sign we look at today or that we benefit from today. Do you know that the Lord's Supper is a sign? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.